A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's gonna get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about CanadaLand and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support CanadaLand. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a CanadaLand supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. Woman after woman comes forward to accuse a powerful Iranian-Canadian man of decades of sexual misconduct. Their accusations describe a serial predator who uses his fame to entrap women decades younger than him into vulnerable situations in which he harasses or assaults them. He denies everything, but still he apologizes. It's unclear what for. This is a man who is respected and influential in the worlds of art and culture, even in politics, and people are scared of him. But as more and more women come forward, it becomes clear that his behavior has been an open secret for years due to his fame and his connections and the many institutions that have invested in him. People are said to have enabled him and to have kept it all quiet until finally the silence was broken. Sounds very familiar. I know. But I am not talking about Gian Gameshi. He'll show up in this story too, but he's not who I was just talking about. No, I was talking about the painter Aidan Agdashlu, the 80-year-old artist who is not just a towering figure in the Iranian art world, but who is also connected to the ruling regime in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Agdashlu is also a luminary here in Canada, where he holds citizenship. He has extensive connections with Tirgan, which is probably the world's largest Iranian arts and culture festival. It's based here in Toronto. Toronto, of course, is home to a huge Iranian diaspora community, the second largest in the world after Los Angeles. Today's story is complicated. It is about how the Me Too movement has hit Iran, a country where just talking about sex can get you into trouble 
and where having sex outside of marriage is actually illegal, but also a country where women have nonetheless come forward to accuse over 100 powerful and prominent men of misconduct, harassment, abuse, and rape. But this is also a story about Canada, about the Iranian community here, a community in which it seemed to me for a minute might take issues of sexual assault and misconduct less seriously than the Iranian community in the Islamic Republic of Iran. Here's how I got there. Back last spring, we broke the news that Gian Gameshi was staging yet another comeback. And the most surprising thing to me was that he had institutional support at a pretty high level. I mean, everywhere else in the media, in Canada, in the US, Gameshi is toxic. He's basically been canceled from Canadian and US media. But last spring, we learned that a prominent figure in the Iranian-Canadian community, Merdad Ariyanejad, who is the CEO of the Tirgan Festival, who is also a founding member of the Iranian-Canadian Congress, well, we learned that he was backing Gameshi. They were in business together on a new Gameshi podcast called Roke, a show in which Gameshi interviews prominent members of the Persian diaspora. Now, I got Merdad Ariyanejad on the phone and he confirmed to me that, yeah, he, he did not have a problem with Gameshi. He didn't believe the women who testified against Gameshi in court, and he had no issue giving Gameshi a platform. Furthermore, he led me to believe that it wasn't just him, that the wider Persian community was also okay with Jean Gameshi. He told me that everybody who comes onto the Roke podcast to talk with Jean Gameshi and legitimize that platform, they're all told in advance about Gameshi's past, and they're all okay with it. Absolutely. We are very clear with everybody. We let them know in advance that this happened to Gian, and if they don't feel comfortable, they can um, uh, you know, refuse to, to be interviewed. Now, hearing that led me to think that, you know, not everybody agrees on everything. Maybe the Persian community in general has different feelings about the Me Too movement than the rest of the culture. Well, as you will soon hear, that was a dangerous assumption for me to make. As we'll get to later on, there is a complicated political context for how this story is playing out. One that a lot of people were willing to speak with us about on background, but were afraid to speak about on the record. We'll get to that. But first, I will begin by talking to Farnaz Fasihi, the New York Times reporter who broke this story wide open. Wait for it. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Vicky, Heather Alson, Ali Verslewis, Julianne Mendoza, Gabrielle Warren, Hannah Sangu, Pat Sanigan, and Scott. I'm Scott and I'm a farmer in Nelson, British Columbia. I listen to the Candleland Network during my morning deliveries as a way to help navigate through the often confusing and contradictory news media. I don't always agree, but I feel that the hosts and producers are accountable in a way that no one else in the Canadian media landscape is. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. 
They are not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. This episode is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. Trust is important. There are a lot of mattress lies out there, a lot of mattress liars. And I, I, I didn't intend the pun, but it occurred to me that there is one as I was saying those words. Listen, I am not lying to you. Uh, I have uh, experienced the Douglas mattress. It is an exceptional mattress at a surprisingly affordable price point. It is a mattress that sleeps cool. doesn't have that weird thing in the summer where the mattress gets like an oven. It's a very good product. It's delivered to your house in a box. You don't have to go to a big mattress store. It is a medium firm mattress, which is what Canadians prefer, and it comes with a 365-night trial and a 20-year warranty. What more can I tell you? Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. For us, who is Aidan Agdashlu? Aydin Agdoshlu is a prominent contemporary artist, Iranian and Canadian dual citizen. In the Iranian art world, he's been revered as a master of the modern art, an art historian, someone who trained a lot of younger artists and had these popular art workshops and classes for several decades in Iran. He's an interesting character because before the revolution, he worked for the royal family. He worked at the at the queen's office as a museum director and helping her curate art. And unlike many artists who had that kind of connection and were sort of outcast, he managed to bridge over those connections after the revolution and carry on and you know even be connected to some of the Iranian regime's institutions. The very striking photograph that ran with your story, these piercing eyes, uh, to the artwork itself, kind of cutting edge contemporary, at least some time ago. This is modern art. And when I think about an artist who was moving in the circles of the Shah and seemed like a kind of indicative of a westernized uh, contemporary, to see that he's found a new home and a new identity for himself with the regime. I don't claim to be all that fluent in how Iran works, but I, I thought those were sort of different things on the spectrum, that he, he was of a secular world and a progressive world, and then this was a, a religious fundamentalist world. So is that rare for somebody to kind of be in good favor and moving around the elite power circles of both of those different powers? It's very rare in Iran, because usually people who were associated with the former monarchy or with the Shah's family were outcasts. Many of them left Iran or were barred from working in Iran. But Mr. Abdoshlu managed to make influential contacts after the revolution as well. He worked as an art appraiser, as uh, an author, and ran workshops for an institution called the Astan Gotser Azavi, which is a charity mega house run uh, under 
under the direct control of the Supreme Leader Ayatollah Khamenei. And it's sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury because it's the richest religious endowment, certainly in the Middle East. And a lot of the money that it generates goes to funding Iran's militias in the region. Mr. Akhtashvili also had some students who were children of prominent Iranian clerics. And I understand he is a Canadian citizen as well. He's a dual citizen. He is. He's a Canadian citizen, as is his family. They immigrated to Canada and he doesn't live in Canada. He's been going back and forth from what I understand. But his wife owns a well-known art gallery, Arta Gallery in Toronto. And they are very well connected to prominent Iranian-Canadian, affluent businessmen, and particularly Tiragon Festival, which is really North America's biggest and most important Iranian cultural festival. What is Aydin Agdashlu accused of having done? So Mr. Agdashlu is accused by 13 women that I interviewed of allegations of sexual misconduct, assault, attacking them, forcibly kissing them, of touching them inappropriately. And one of the women that I interviewed was 13 years old at the time that she alleges this happened to her. She was his student, and she says that he was pressing his body against her as he was teaching her technique. And these allegations come from some of his students. They come from a teaching assistant who taught her his workshops for 12 years and witnessed some of this and then quit after she alleges he attacked him. And they come from Iranian journalists who covered art and culture in Iran who went to interview him. These allegations span three decades. Correct. These allegations span three decades. Most of the women that I interviewed did not know each other. The story really evolved as I was reporting it. I set out to do a story about Iran's Me Too in August when it sort of exploded online with that with the Persian hashtag and Iranian women were taking the extraordinary, unusual step of coming forward and sharing these stories online. And the most prominent name was Mr. Akhtashlu. You know, the Me Too movement has spread throughout the world. It's, it's not necessarily such a surprise that it's become a force in Iran. You write that uh, women who say they have been sexually assaulted are improbably going public in the Islamic Republic of Iran. What is improbable about this? And what is unique about coming forward about such allegations in a place like Iran? Well, culturally in Iran, it's really prohibited to talk about sex in any way. You don't really openly discuss issues like consent or abuse. Kids are not taught this in school. Parents don't talk about this. There's a certain taboo that comes along with it. So that's the cultural part. So if talking about sex is that difficult, imagine talking about sexual abuse is even that much more rare and difficult. But there's also legal component to it. In the Islamic Republic's penal code, which follows the Islamic Sharia law, it is illegal to have sex outside of marriage for both a woman and a man. And for a woman to come and say that she was raped or she faced some of this, she could be accused. She could very quickly turn into the criminal herself, right? Even something like, you know, being alone with a man or going to a man's house or being in any circumstances that might bring this on, the woman could be blamed. So for Iranian women to come forward and put both the cultural, the family, the legal difficulties and challenges of speaking up about this, putting that aside and really coming out was really groundbreaking. 
as you report, uh, it's, it's sort of very drastic either way. If they're successful bringing forth an accusation of rape, the rapist could face a charge of corruption on earth, mm-hmm. which is a capital offense. And if the uh, accuser is unsuccessful, she is testifying against herself, that she is saying that she had sex outside of wedlock, which mm-hmm. is uh, actually against the law. Exactly. In one of the Me Too cases, this bookseller and tour guide named Kayvon Emanverdi, whose name came up in August on social media with the Iran Me Too movement, there were lots of allegations of rape. And women were not filing legal charges because of exactly that, because they were worried. So the prosecutor and the police chief in Iran said, we're going to change our regulation We won't ask the women any questions about why they went to his house. The allegations were that he was putting drugs in wine and giving them to the women. And when they were unconscious, he was raping them. And they were saying, we're not going to ask you why you drank alcohol, which is also illegal, why you went to a a man's house. We won't ask any questions. And, And remarkably, 30 women came forward and after that protection promise, uh, filed legal complaints. And the police said that this man had confessed and they had found evidence in his house and they have charged him with corruption on earth and he faces the death penalty because the crime of rape does carry capital punishment. I think it takes bravery and it's very difficult on women who come forward in these cases under any circumstances, but the, this seems like a particularly harsh environment to do this. Well, exactly, because, you know, Mr. Akashluz has taken legal action against a very well-known actress who was his student, Lala Saburi, because she simply tweeted in August that... She was his student and that most women and young girls were afraid to be alone with him. And she tweeted that rape is an allegation that's befitting of him. And for tweeting this, he has taken legal action against her for defaming him. His lawyers have told her that they're going to pursue one to three years of prison if she doesn't delete her tweet and take it back. And they're going to seek out flogging. So a woman just simply coming forward, the man still has the power to go to court and say she defamed me by making this allegation and take her and flog her 83 times or put her in prison. So we're talking about a legal system that is stacked up against the woman in every way. And you do mention that there, this is the name that popped in the most prominent name when you were investigating Me Too in Iran large. A hundred men have been accused, you report. And when you get into details about who's been accused, you mention a giant e-commerce company's former star manager, the owner of a popular bookstore. I don't mean to be reductive or resort to stereotypes. I want to just regard that that I think when a lot of people think about the Islamic Republic of Iran, and they think about the Ayatollah, and they think about the regime, and they think about religious autocracy with a place with repressive, misogynistic fundamentalism, those might not be the kind of roles they imagine when thinking of powerful men. I'm wondering if you can situate this culturally. Iran is a complicated place. And I still find myself struggling to kind of wrap my head around how something like this plays out in a place with these complexities. Well, I mean, one of the interesting things is that after my story ran, this resonated very broadly in Iran and it transcended politics, right? So newspapers that spanned different political factions picked it up and reprinted it from the Revolutionary Guards newspaper to the centrists to the reformers. It really hit a nerve. People recognize that this is a social issue, it's not a political issue. And that was very interesting to me because often everything that we write is seen through a a political lens in Iran by some faction. And and this one wasn't. As someone who's covered Iran, I, I found the reaction in Iran to this story also noteworthy. Iran on the surface or from the outside sounds like the Islamic Republic of Iran ruled by 
clerics. But Iran's actually a very dynamic, modern, and developing society. And you have all the different kinds of tensions that you have uh, in other countries playing out there too, secular population, the younger generation who are very well connected to the world through social media. They're very internet savvy. They're on Twitter, they're on Telegram and Instagram. And you know, against the verses, the traditions of the society, the religious conservatives who want to hold them back. So all these tensions are there. It's also a population that um, very educated. Women make up more than half of the student body at universities and more than 40% of the workforce. So it's a country that's modernizing and has, has been modernizing despite these religious and conservative rules. And you have that tension playing out from inside families to the society. And I think there are 133 names that have come up and all but two are men. So over about like 100 30-something men that have been accused of these. We've seen the name of professors, teachers, bosses of one of them, of Iran's equivalent to Amazon, which you mentioned, uh, also family members. So really the span, just like any other society. Is there any aspect of uh, these accusations getting politicized and of the regime? You know, you think about women standing up to abusers and I think it's sort of a natural evolution, working out some of the uh, the dynamics of sexual liberation and rebalancing things. But I don't think many of the accusers or the way that discourse has played out in the West has been to kind of like try to revert things to any kind of um, pre-sexual liberation. That They're taking these accusations seriously, that it's not being abused, if, if there's anything you know about that. Well, judging from the, the reaction of the regime and the media in Iran to both the Me Too movement online for Iran in August and the feedback and the way that my story was received, I have to say that I've been very surprised that this story has transcended politics, that even in Iran, where everything is seen through the prism of politics and factional politics, the issue of women being sexually abused has hit a nerve. It's hit a nerve among conservative men, among secular, among centrist, reformists, hardliners. My story reverberated in a way that I've never had any of my stories in all the years I've covered Iran really land in Iran. A hardliner newspaper belonging to the Revolutionary Guards reprinted my story in full. The centrist newspaper that belonged to the government also did, as well as the main popular reformist website. So you had all the political factions. And the feedback that I got, including actually from some of my government sources, conservative men who were calling uh, or leaving me messages saying, thank you for writing this. Thank you for really creating social awareness in Iran about this issue. And I don't know if you saw, but I had a conservative politician call me and say, I shared your story with my wife and I shared it with my teenage daughter. And for the first time in our family, we had a conversation about sexual consent and about abuse with our daughter. And I wanted to thank you for that. And, you know, I took that to heart to mean that we had generated a conversation and that at the very least, there seems to be a lot more social awareness about these women having the right to speak up about what happened to them. And everybody should hear them and investigate whether the allegations they are coming forth with are correct or not correct. Those days that 
a woman says something and the man says, be silenced, you're defaming me, and then rallies up all the support as, you know, some of these prominent men, including Mr. Al-Rashlu, have done, those days are over. And I think the society is responding to that. You know, if you tell Canadians that there's been an expose of a prominent Iranian Canadian who is very influential and powerful in art circles, who's now accused of sexual misconduct spanning a long period of time, I think they're going to think you're talking about Jean Gameshi. Mm-hmm. This is not the first time. In fact, this seems to be kind of late to the Me Too cycle. There was this case before Me Too. Beyond the similarities that I just described, there are other connections that you have written and, and, and talked about on the internet. Can you tell me what those connections are? So you're correct. There is a connection between Mr. Agroshlu and Jian Rameshi. These are the two most prominent male figures in the Iranian diaspora or Iranians that have been accused of sexual misconduct. And the connection is that there's the CEO of Tirgan Festival, Mehdad Aryan Najad, is business partners with the ex-wife of Mr. Agrashlu. They co-own an art gallery together named Arta Gallery in Toronto, and he has invited Mr. Agrashlu to come on stage at Tirgan Festival and has featured him prominently in their videos, in their workshops, and in the festival. Mr. Aryan Najad is also now business partners with Gian Rameshi and has decided to resurrect his career and give him a new podcast. So here you have a very prominent member of the Iranian-Canadian community who is the head of this major cultural festival who has t- business ties to, to Mr. Agrashlu's family and to Gian Rameshi. So that's surprising. More disturbing is the fact that I spoke to two very prominent women in California from our community, mm-hmm. one of them a radio host and the other one the director of the Iranian American Women Foundation. And they told me that Mr. Aryan Najat called them and lobbied for them to appear on Jian's new show without disclosing to them any of the background or the allegations against Jian. And one of them failed for this She felt like she was duped, the radio hostess, and was outraged afterwards. The other woman, the director of the Iranian-American Women Foundation, she Googled Jian before agreeing and then realized uh, and declined and was equally outraged. And your reporting tells us that further than that, it's not simply that he welcomes Agdashlu's work to the Tirgan Festival, to this major cultural festival, but that he is in fact in business with Agdashlu's wife. Exactly. He's in business with his wife at a gallery that has prominently featured him, exhibited him in August. As the allegations were surfacing, they advertised the workshop with a legend, completely ignoring that these allegations were coming up. And he also hasn't been responsive to the demands by the Iranian-Canadian community for Tirgan to take a stand and disassociate with Jian and disassociate with Mr. Agrashlu. So far in the Me Too story in Iran, we've had two prominent Iranians who have faced allegations. One was Jian and, and one is Aydin. And this guy is somehow connected to both of them. Farnaz, how has this moved forward? What is the status? And I know we're talking about, as you say, 130 different cases uh, plus. But since you're reporting, what is the status of this one case? And, and we'll remind people again that Mr. Agdashlu rigorously denies all accusations, though taking some sort of ambiguous responsibility for his shortcomings as a person. He has apologized, but he's not admitted to any of the things he's been accused of. And in fact, he's sicked his lawyers on accusers. So where is this case now? 
Correct. Mr. Akrashlu denied requests of, of interviews by us and denied in a statement any of these allegations. And where it stands is that he's facing some repercussions from the art world. He had a solo art exhibition in Iran. And in August, when the first allegations surfaced a few days after that, his representatives canceled it. But the art gallery owner told me that he has a zero tolerance policy about sexual misconduct. So even if his representative hadn't canceled it, he would have. And the Tehran Art Auction, which is a very important annual event, and Mr. Agroshlu's paintings are prominently displayed and auctioned, they said that they are considering pulling his work off. They do a lot of international business, that they don't want this perception to be there, that they don't care or are tolerant of these, these allegations. So he's facing, I think, some fallout in terms of being able to exhibit his work or, or sell his work for now. And what happens legally really depends on whether any of the of, of the women will or go forward and file legal action uh, against them in, in Iran or in Canada. At least three of them have told us that they're considering it. So he has been canceled by the arts community in different institutions in Iran, but he's still welcome here in Canada. Well, I don't know about that. His ex-wife and Mr. Aryanajat told my colleague that, well, I think Mr. Aryanajat told my colleague that they wouldn't exhibit his art uh, right now. I think they don't want attention or some such thing. I don't know whether this is a policy that's going to extend beyond the current climate where the story is alive or whether they're, this is a policy that they've taken not to extend it. That wasn't clear to me. So the question is, what happens with Tirgan? What happens with this? You know, his daughter had made a, a documentary about him. She's a filmmaker in London and that she had sent it to two festivals. And after our story came out, the festivals pulled it from their website and said it's not even on their website anymore. And her executive producer told me that he has said that he will withdraw his name and affiliation if the film doesn't address the allegations. So, you know, there is some fallout, but we have to see sort of where it goes. Arnaz, thank you so much. Thank you very much for having me, Jesse. Pleasure talking to you. Okay, so a couple of updates since that interview was recorded. First, the Tirgan Festival. Initially, its CEO, Merdad Arianajad, when pressed about whether or not the Tirgan Festival would be denouncing Agdashlu, disassociating itself from him, well, he said that the festival's board had decided that the Agdashlu controversy had nothing to do with the Tirgan Festival. That was hard to swallow. Agdashlu had been invited to Tirgan several times. And right there on Tirgan's YouTube channel, there was an interview with Aidan Agdashlu. Then the pressure mounted. There was a petition from within the Canadian-Iranian community. The CBC reported on that petition. And finally, earlier this month, Tirgan put out a statement that they condemn all acts of sexual misconduct. They have a zero-tolerance policy against all forms of harassment and discrimination, and they have no ties to Aidan Agdashlu, and they will never act as a forum for those who are guilty of sexual misconduct. Now, that is a pretty definitive statement from Tirgan, which, by the way, is a registered charity which receives government funding. But Merdad Arianajad wears three hats in this story. In addition to running Tirgan, he is also, once again, the co-owner of the Arta Gallery with Agdashlu's ex-wife. Now, at first, when these accusations broke on Twitter, the Arta Gallery stood by Agdashlu. They hosted a workshop with him where they called him a legend. Well, the update there is that that position seems to have evolved as well. Now, Merdad Arianajad says that Arta, well, they won't take a position against Agdashlu, 
but nevertheless, they will stop hosting him in order to, quote, avoid the noise. That leaves one connection. The same petition that demanded that the Tirgan Festival stop giving predators a platform also blasted Merdad Arianejad's platforming of Jean Gameshi. That platforming is ongoing. The Roke podcast continues to publish, and I wanted to follow up with Arianejad about that and more. I wanted to ask him if he was telling me the truth back when he told me that everybody who appears on Roke is okay with Jean Gameshi. He did not accept our interview request, and he did not send us an answer to that question. And at that point, this whole thing left me very confused about who exactly represents the Iranian-Canadian community. A lot of people claim to. Merdad Aryanajad had me believing that he did when he told me that many prominent members of that community feel just as he does about Gameshi. Now there is strong reason to believe that that simply was never true. And what we were hoping for was to find somebody who would talk with me, who could orient me, not just about how these particular allegations have been reverberating in the Iranian-Canadian community, but orient me with the wider context. There is, of course, a political side to this. There are factions in the community revolving around who is considered allied with the regime in Iran and who is considered to be opposed. And which side is which is not always clear. So we went looking for somebody within that community, a journalist, ideally, who could take me through it, lay it all out for me. And I got to tell you, as, as mentioned earlier, we, we did not succeed with that. A number of people spoke with us at length, but only on background. It became really clear to me that we are wading into something that is really thorny. And as it turns out, the very question of who gets to speak for the Iranian-Canadian community is itself the focus of a nasty conflict that is playing out right now. There is a movement associated with the Tirgan Festival and with Merdad Arianejad and other prominent figures to oust my next guest from her position as president of the Iranian-Canadian Congress. The organization that Merdad Arianejad co-founded, but in which he is no longer welcome. Here is my conversation with Sude Gassemi. What was your initial response when you learned about the allegations against Aden Agdashlu? Uh, my initial response on a personal level would be, honestly, it was very disappointing. It was um, shocking and disappointing. It seems that this has created a good deal of controversy amongst the Iranian-Canadian community. And I'm wondering if you can give me any insight or context about that controversy. Me Too stories are often controversial when it's uh, debated whether or not the allegations are true or not. This case seems to be, given the sheer number of people making allegations a case where I'm not aware of anyone saying, oh, he's innocent, uh, there's nothing to see here, or, 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 or are they? What, what, what is the nature of the disagreement or the controversy as, as you understand it? Okay, so the way I would explain this is that when the news was out there in terms of the allegations, what I've heard as, as an individual, it was a total silence which in my personal opinion, it's even worse than talking about the controversial aspect of the cases as such, uh, because it was a total silence for a good period of time. 
and uh, no one would even want to mention it or talk about it for the longest time until there was a New York Times article which was published and then later on CBC News worked on the story and then there was a little bit of conversation going on. The whole concept of talking about this subject behind the closed doors and not talking about it publicly it was very disturbing and it was a clear indication of the silence culture that is currently happening within the community. Well, the connection of Mr. Ablashlu to a certain group of people who are well-known within the community, there are considered uh, leaders of the community, uh, would be one factor that um, a lot of people were not getting involved in the conversation so that in case, you know, in the future, would cost them. To read the New York Times reporting, it seems that uh, Agdashlu faced a series of consequences in Iran, and people were not shy in many cases to stop showing his work or to distance themselves from him. It was surprising to see that there was arguably a more mild response from elements of the community here in Canada, where, from what you're telling me, he looms very large. And you could almost look at this as a case where Iran looks like it was more decisive on this than the Iranian-Canadian diaspora um, here in Toronto and, and in Canada in general. Would that be an accurate way to look at this? I, I believe so. And it was also shocking to me as well. I was expecting a different reaction from the entities you had mentioned. And I, I do believe that in this particular case, that there was kind of silence culture that it was imposed in this particular case. It doesn't look like that he currently had seen any consequences in Canada so far. Uh, the only thing that we see is a recent statement out by Tirgon uh, mentioning that they have no connection or affiliation with Mr. Ardashlu. Other than that, there is there's no consequences, unfortunately. I would like to know why there was so much resistance to to take the the proper reaction right away. Uh, I would also like to know, I know that Mr. Ardashlu was in in Toronto back in August. And uh, I don't know if you've seen the pictures or not, uh, but he was hanging out around Arta Gallery. Mm-hmm. And this is late August. Mm-hmm. Uh, after, after the allegations had surfaced. After the allegations. And he was still hanging out with a certain group of people in Tirgon. I would like to know why they're not condemning um, something as obvious as this right away. And the other thing I would I would say is that what steps they're taking moving forward to ensure that Tirgon is a safe place for everyone to attend or for volunteers. Because I've seen that in their statements, they, they mentioned that Tirgon will be safe. It's a safe place for a while. But what exact steps Merdad is taking or the, the leaders of the organizations are taking to ensure that it is the case? I haven't seen anything practical as of yet. I have limited context to try to kind of form an understanding of this, but but I'm curious. And uh, my, my prior 
very limited reporting on the community had to do with breaking the story. Um, that's a kind of a related story that that Gian Gameshi was working with Merdad uh, Ariyanejad, who uh, was a founding member of your organization, the Iranian Canadian Congress, and is also um, affiliated with Tirgan. Uh, in covering that story, I heard from him a point of view that was not consistent with, I guess, the mainstream point of view on Gian Gameshi. Gian Gameshi is not really welcome in the wider Canadian media, but Merdad said, well, I, I have an open mind about him and I don't necessarily believe all the accusers. And when I asked him if the guests who come on to Gameshi's show, uh, you know, these prominent members of the Iranian diaspora who come on to Gameshi's show, do they know about the allegations against Gameshi? Merdad told me, yes, they know and they don't care. Now, I don't think that everybody has to think like me, and it's only been, you know, a few minutes that uh, we've reached a cultural consensus that these types of allegations should impact somebody's platform and, and, and their access to audiences. Not everybody necessarily agrees with that. It kind of left me with the impression that maybe there's a cultural difference here and that these accusations are just generally not taken as seriously or given as much weight within the Iranian uh, diaspora as maybe they are as the Me Too movement has established itself with other people. And so I take that kind of conception with me into this story, and I wonder if that is where the controversy and the disconnect between the way that these stories play out otherwise lies. But I don't want to be too simplistic. Um, and if I know nothing else, and I know very little about the uh, Iranian diaspora, I know that it's complicated. Uh, is this simply a matter of some people having more uh, repressive uh, versus progressive ideas or, or different attitudes about sex? Or are there other politics involved in this? To be quite honest on, on this particular case and uh, the case that you had mentioned uh, related to this, it's not about the concept of how uh, the community perceives sexual harassment topic. Obviously, the community as a whole condemns any types of sexual harassment. That is a, a clear concept within our community at large. However, in this particular case, I, I believe it's more of these particular individuals are being protected uh, by a certain group of people, including Mehrdad, who are considered powerful within a community. Uh, so uh, that uh, it, it's, it's like anybody who wants to speak up uh, would pay the price at some point. So... People would prefer not to speak up. And just in regards to Jiang Omeishi case that you had covered. And I did reach out to you back then. And uh, I sent you the clarification that what Merdad is saying is not the response from our community. And it's not what my, my, the organization, Iranian Canadian or Congress, stands uh, for. Uh, so that uh, the Mehrdad's comments are his own comments, and mm -hmm. we cannot, you know, relate that to the, the community at large. And they were very much inappropriate. Wow, there's a lot going on in this. I mean, I take your point first of all that um, we should not assume that Mehrdad's position on this on his comments about Agdashlu or Gameshi or any of these issues or on the accusers are reflective of the wider community. That was suggested when he was telling me that, oh, nobody who comes on the show cares about these allegations. That turns out to be disputed. Farnaz uh, Fasihi 
the uh, New York Times reporter tells us that um, there are people who are asked to go on that podcast who say that they were not warned about who they were being asked to go into conversation with, um, and they wouldn't have gone if they had known. Um, Merdad told me that everybody was warned. Um, so perhaps he's just reflecting himself, but there is something else there because if I'm hearing nothing else here, it's that there's power politics at play here and that Merdad and Agdashlu um, are powerful people in their own right. But is this just about power and fear or there is there a, a conflict of ideas here? Like what are the positions that are in conflict here? The positions that I would say it's in conflict here, if I want to summarize um, the whole conflict, the way I see it in Canada, there are two generations who are immigrants. One generation is whoever immigrated to Canada long time ago. There are older generations. They're more established now. And there are the second wave who recently immigrated to Canada. So the second wave who recently immigrated to Canada, they have a different perspective in comparison to the first wave, who is the older and powerful, um, more established generation in Canada. And it's just a different perception of what is the priority for our community. The second wave usually doesn't want to get involved in politics. They chose Canada as their home. So they want to get involved in the Canadian society. Obviously, they want the organization to advocate for them if anything comes up uh, that is affecting the community. And they want to get involved in the Canadian politics and the new perspective and the young perspective. And in comparison, the more established group who is currently have a different view, they always look back to the home country, Iran, and any movement within the community, you know, they, they just want to use it uh, for their political agenda. So that's unfortunately the case currently. That's helpful. And if this isn't too reductive, this older generation is, might be more comfortable with uh, a more direct anti-regime, pro-sanction, which I guess, as politics would have it, would put some members in league with Trump policies of direct confrontation with the regime versus a younger generation that might be accused of being pro-regime because they're less confrontational. But really, uh, I see a lot of um, pro-peace demonstration looking to, to not escalate towards armed conflict. And also because there are ties, uh, not wanting to make the situation worse by, by worsening the sanctions. Is that broadly an accurate way of looking at these two groups? That is correct, yes. And what this has to do with sexual politics or with with, with misogyny, with uh, sexual violence, I have no idea. You would think that both groups with a political disagreement like that could agree that men should not be uh, violating women. Is this just something that's gotten caught in the middle because the accused happens to be a prominent, powerful member of one of those groups? I believe so. I believe that's the case. And uh, I am personally shocked as why we're not in agreement on this particular topic and uh, react in the same way. But uh, that's what happened. Uh, he was protected by the other side. That is your Canada land. If you like this show, you can get it ad free for five bucks a month 
by going to canadaland.com slash join or just clicking on the link in the show notes. You can email me at jesse at canadalandshow.com. I read them all. We're on Twitter at CanadaLand. Our website is canadaland.com. While you're on our website, why don't you sign up for our newsletter? We uh, put together all of the stuff that we publish throughout the week. So if you miss anything, you won't. And uh, there's other good stuff in there too. Check it out. This episode was produced by Rosalind Kufour with additional production by Gabe Knox. Our managing editor is Andrea Schmidt. Our theme song is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. If you like what we do, please support us. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures and it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.